I think one of the things art does is it, it asks you to perceive what it is on, on its own level. And it can come up and grab you at any time. It, it can be reassuring, it, it could be exactly the opposite. It could agitate you, it could be something you dismiss, it could be something that engages you, it could be something you recall, it could be something that leads to things that have nothing to do with what you're looking at. So I think works of art engage possibly an internal memory bank that isn't linear. And it can make you see the outside reality in that way also. Welcome to the January 24th, 2019 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. That was the voice of Richard Serra, an artist who's been a powerful force in contemporary art since the 1960s. He's the subject of a new book of interviews edited by noted art critic and art historian Hal Foster. I'm going to start by admitting my own take. For years, I wasn't the biggest fan of Sarah's sculptures, preferring his video and other early works instead. But I have to say, Foster's book did a particularly good job at revealing the layers, myths, and nuances of his sculptural work. It's safe to say I've changed my mind. Soon after I finished the book, in fact, I found myself near King City, Ontario, where Sarah's first land artwork, Shift, was commissioned in 1970. The site-specific work was created on the property of art collector Roger Davidson. Sarah approached Davidson with the idea, and the collector agreed in exchange for two of the artist's smaller sculptures. Yep, the artist paid him. There was no contract, and the artist believed that the work would be preserved on the land. Well, that didn't quite happen. The property has changed hands a number of times since then, but I had to see it for myself. So I went on a little adventure with my brother Puzant and my husband Viken, and we ended up trudging through a half-frozen marsh. King City, for those of you who may not know, was once considered at the time as a bastion of wealth. When I attended high school in Rexdale in the late 1980s, which is about 20 minutes from this place, the rumor in school was there were 10 Lamborghinis in the province of Ontario, and seven of them were in King City. Today's shift is buffered between a solidly middle-class subdivision and a farm. Quite a workout. There are fences all around, but nobody was going to get between me and the art. I don't think we could do it. I probably spoke too soon. We got a third of a way via what appeared to be the closest perimeter to the work when we realized the marsh wasn't completely frozen. And we probably miscalculated the type of outerwear we needed. One of us was wearing suede shoes. You didn't tell me we needed to walk through a swamp. That's Vigen. He's still upset I didn't give him all the details of our trip. But moving on. I remembered that my friend Jason Paris had been successful in his visit a few years ago. So I asked him to tell us about his experience and how he got to this hard-to-get-to land work. Well, there's always something great about a large Richard Serra sculpture. Shift is different in the sense that the art isn't the only experience, but so is getting to it. The first time I attempted to see Shift in person, I got knee-deep in mud and turned back in a hasty retreat declaring, never again in the spring. So I went back many months later in the early winter when the ground was at least partially frozen. It's a bit of a walk from the main road through fields of muck, rows of corn, and not really much of a defined path. 
but after ascending a small hill, it does start to make its mark on the horizon. And when you do actually get there, you aren't only met with a great piece of zigzagging art, but also with a sense of accomplishment. And perhaps that is why I worry a bit about it. While I believe it is protected, it will likely soon be hemmed in by suburban Toronto development. So while it may always be, technically at least, that same great Sarah sculpture, that whole great discovery experience will be lost. And I can't help but thinking that that experience is central to it as an art piece. Thanks, Jason. Now for the big interview. Hal Foster probably needs little introduction. He's best known for his 1983 book, The Anti-Aesthetic, Essays on Postmodern Culture. And he's been teaching at Princeton University for the last few decades. His latest book, Conversations About Sculpture, Richard Sarah Hal Foster, is a deep dive into the work of an influential sculptor who continues to push boundaries. So you talk about when you first met Sarah was at the Odeon, which is a pretty renowned uh, restaurant meeting place here in New York. Is that where you first met him? Yeah, I, you know, tell no lies. I mean, we <laughs> there are stories that come up in the book where the fictive comes into play. But no, we met at the Odeon, I would say 1983, fall of 1983. He happened to be with Frank Gehry, uh, why they would be interested, uh, they were already known, why they would be interested in a young critic is um, a mystery. Really? You have no idea? Well, I, I think it, it had to do with the fact that um, even then I was known to be associated with the pictures artists, mm -hmm. and they had begun to emerge into attention. And I think Sarah was curious about this new generation. He's very rivalrous in his take on things. So, you know, he wanted to know who the new, new kids on the block were. So I think that's why so he engaged he me, but I also yeah. wanted to He was sniffing around to a talk little. To him. Who's this guy? Who's <laughs> yeah, and the Odeon back then was, was still a neighborhood place where people would go to hang out. It was mostly um, a haven for artists, performers, musicians, writers. So it was a, a natural place to meet. This was also back in the day when one could live downtown if one were young and meet people. Um, you know, in that regard, it's, you know, that moment is closer to the 1950s than it is to today. And were you a regular at the Odeon? Yeah. I mean, it was a, a scene. I wasn't really a denizen, but that's where we would go to hang out. I mean, there's a clock there. It's still there. This beautiful pastel clock and you look at it and not really care what time it was so people hung out into the wee hours and you know this is also the the period of cocaine mm -hmm. so people could hang out and you know i wasn't really a cokehead but um i certainly had friends and yeah me partners too. who were <laughs> so um <laughs> Yeah, I hung in there. Uh, it was great in that regard. So for those people who may not know the scene then, like who were some of the people you'd be seeing? Or who, like, were there conversations going on every evening where you just sort of, people would go there as a natural place to go after an opening? Like, what, what was the scene like? Just that. I mean, it, it wasn't quite as fabled necessarily as the Cedar Bar or 
Max's, but it was a place where people could talk. It was also the case that this was the moment of a huge change in the art world, you know, with Reagan deregulation, money began to flow into the art world. So it suddenly became a scene in this other sense, too, where it wasn't just artists and writers that hung out. People wanted to hang out with artists. And so there was a bit of a frenzy to it, a bit of a social frenzy that maybe distinguished it from other hangouts. But yeah, it was great fun. And it wasn't just fun. We, we really did to talk, and that's where Sarah and I first began to speak. And whereabouts were you living at the time? Well, he was on Duane Street, where he still is, and I was on Broom Street, so... So you guys were practically neighbors. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, we've, we've seen a lot happen to that neighborhood over the years. The conversations you had then, how did they begin generally? I mean, because you mentioned that he was interested in some of the work you've been doing in the pictures generation and, right. and that. So what were the some of the initial conversations? What do you remember most about them? Well, again, he wanted to figure out what this new group uh, was like, you know, what they might offer in the way of, a, of an argument uh, that, that he might want to take on. But this was just at the moment when he had not one, not two, but three sculptures below Canal Street. Right. There was the Rotary Arc by the Holland Tunnel. There was TWU uh, near Franklin Street. And, of course, there was Tilted Dark. Right. And this was before the controversy. The controversy of Tilted Arc began to happen in the, the mid-1980s. It was mm-hmm. really a, a concerted move, I think, on the, the part of the government concerted move in its culture wars. They saw it as a, an object that they could take up and maybe make a test case with. So, you know, that drew me in further uh, with Sarah. I testified at the hearings. Mm-hmm. The hearings were really set up against the piece. You know, I think he's right in his analysis in the book of, the, of that situation. I, and t- I testified on, on his behalf. It was such a difficult time for him. He was such an object of abuse that I think he withdrew a little bit. In any case, we we fell out of conversation for a good while there. Um, I mean, I think rightly so. He felt the uh, not only the the art world but the weight of the government on him. I mean, it was it was an intense period for him. And for those that may not know, Tilted Arc, of course, was that big work near the federal building right. um, that sort of sort of cut across the plaza. And at the time, there were a lot of stories going around. Some people said the people who worked there didn't like it. There were all these types of things. So when you said that there felt like there was a concerted effort, what were some of the signs for you of that? Well, there was one judge in particular, a guy named Judge Reed, who really opened up the campaign but there was the General Services Administration administrator uh, named William Diamond, who I think really came in with an idea that he could make a name mm. uh, through this controversy. So the, the hearings did seem to be tilted from the start. Um, Part of the pun. Yeah, and sadly, um, you, know, you could almost see it before it happened. It pitted, you know, one public, public that supported the sculpture, you know, very much a downtown public, mm-hmm. uh, but there was support, you know, extensive support in the art world. It also divided the art world, but it, it pitted that public against a public that wanted to use the plaza for picnics. But 
That was also semi-false, too, in that the, the plaza was a very disused space. The fountain didn't work. But the, the hearings were crazy. I mean, you heard the, the damnedest theories that somehow this was, the sculpture would create a you know, rat problem, that <laughs> somehow the ark was a perfect vent for bombs that could you know, take out right. you know, federal buildings. I mean, it was my first encounter really with culture wars at their most paranoid. Right. I mean, it's you know, nothing compared to today, but right. I mean, it's important for people to remember that you know, before, there were, <laughs> before there was Trump, there was Bush, and before there was Bush, there was Reagan. I mean, it, it, it seemed really, really bad. That moment. So what did it teach you about the art world at the time? Because I mean, this was a big issue. Like, even, you know, I'm a little kid, I had heard of it, you know, in, mm-hmm. in high school in Toronto, you know, uh, sure. I had heard about the case now, but that clearly must have maybe shifted your thinking or maybe enlightened you about a certain aspect you weren't aware of at the time. Anything? The American government would destroy a work of art. I mean, that was chilling. Mm. And we were not slow to make connections to historical periods mm. where this had happened before, i.e. the Nazis. I mean, it was it was intense. I mean, rhetorically intense, but I don't think it was out of bounds to draw these parallels. And, it, you know, it, it, was, it was a divisive time in that regard. It did, for Sarah, I think, prompt him to a very important definition of site-specific art, uh, a negative one, but an important one, which is his famous line that to move the work is to destroy the work. And that's a, a base test of a site-specific work. Once it was removed, it was destroyed as far as he was concerned, and I agree with him. So one of the things about the book, especially in the early part, mm-hmm. that I found really interesting was how he seemed to bounce around <laughs> with all these things. I mean, he was doing Arte Povera practically in Rome, um, an exhibition that was shut down. I mean, it wasn't yeah. technically Arte Povera. Yeah. I know that. but He it, might have influenced them yeah. rather than the reverse. But right. Yeah. But he mentions uh, being sort of at that moment that seemed really crucial at the development of that. And then when he came back to New York, the sort of the connection, maybe the missed connection with minimalism and conceptual art. Right. How would you characterize that? What was it he was searching for? Well, I mean, in a way, we have to back up a little bit. I mean, he, he went to Yale in the mid-1960s, was a, a late student, or at least had a late encounter with Joseph Albers. Mm-hmm. You know, his pedagogy of materials, 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 that was extremely important to Sarah, I think, to experiment with materials at that point. He still was a painter, didn't know really what he would do, got a fellowship through Yale that was extended by the Guggenheim Foundation to go to Paris. Uh, And that's really where he discovered his interest in sculpture in the Brancusi studio through Giacometti II, whom he seemed to stalk almost. He was there with Phil Glass. I mean, Sarah had this talent just to fall in with people. who could engage him, provoke him. Glass was certainly one. They travel a bit together. I was also impressed his Yale class. I mean, he had like Chuck Close in his class. Yeah, he had Bryce Rocks, Martin, I'm sorry, Bryce Martin, Martin, Bryce Martin. And there was also Rackstraw Downs. And I mean, that's quite a class. Yeah. No, it's, and all of them are so different. Right. I think Sarah took Albers, you know, the materialism of Albers to heart more than the others. And that's really a through line. I mean, it, reason why I step back to Yale is to insist mm-hmm. on that, 
that pedagogical line because um, that pragmatic interest in materials and processes, in a way that runs through the Bauhaus, Black Mountain, to Yale, through Albers, and on to Sarah mm-hmm. and his cohort. But, you know, when he returns with Glass to New York, he picks up with people again in the neighborhood, like Steve Reich, uh, he knew Chuck Close before, Michael Snow, Spalding Gray, you know, Sarah has a truck, so they form this little company of movers together. Can you imagine these I guys know. as your movers? I never quite got a sense in the book of the role different texts may have played on him. I, I mean, he, mm-hmm. he hints at things. Occasionally, he'll mention a book. I think at one point he says that yes, himself well and Glass uh, was reading John Cage, and he right. felt he was a little too unstructured for him yeah. at that time. Yep. And that was an example. But did you get a sense of what role text or the word played in his work in general? Yeah, such a good question, because at one point when he questions conceptual art, he doesn't like uh, work that's predetermined. Mm -hmm. It has to be made in the material, in the process, in public, so we can share it. This is part of this democratic ethos that he has. So he doesn't like how in conceptual art the idea is the machine that makes the art, to quote Saul LeWitt. So you'd think that he'd be suspicious about text. Mm-hmm. But at that point, I ask him, well, what about your verb list? I mean, this is a right. er work for you, this list of verbs and uh, they're really actions and processes that you want to enact on materials. And he, he qualifies it. He says it's not, it's not a work. It's really a prompt for work. Right. But it, it's clear that he's also a very textual artist, too. I mean, he cares deeply about criticism, deeply about literature, and he's very well read. So other other texts that I think are key for him, George Kubler, The Shape of Time, is, is absolutely essential. It was very important to Smithson and, and others in his cohort. And in fact, we have um, a conversation titled Prime Objects, which is an idea drawn from Kubler about how traditions shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what is it about a particular work that redirects an art form? Mm-hmm. And we talk uh, about his own prime objects, you know, what he takes now in retrospect to be moments in which his work is redirected. And they're not, you know, they're, they're not expected ones. So that's, that's absolutely a, a key text for him. So there, there are many. I've mentioned Emerson, Camus, he talks about the clarity of French critics, French writers and critics. Who was he talking about in that case? Uh, well, in the first instance, a writer not much read, in this country at least, Michel Boutour, but a writer who is, Roland Barthes. Sarah loved the lucidity of Barthian prose. And that clarity is, uh, you know, for all the, the messiness of down and dirty minimalism, that clarity of thought, the clarity of form, the clarity of structure and sight, that's crucial to Sarah as a value. And another enlightening moment in the book was his his discussion and your discussion of institutional critique. Mm. He seemed to think that it wasn't going to last the test of time. Am I right to characterize (laughs) it that way? Yeah, that's another controversial moment where we, in a way, agree to disagree. And here's his thinking there. Um, another text, another philosopher important to him is Bertrand Russell. That's odd because he's not much read by people like you and me anymore. But in Russell, there is the line that 
to develop a critique of one language, you really need to develop a different language. This is an idea that's very different from my own orientation in deconstruction, which insists that you have to be inside the language to critique it. And that's really the position of institution critique, that you have to be in the institution to critique it. For Sarah, that's, that's a failing, you know, indeed a, a fatal flaw. The work that, in a way, follows him in his insistence on sight, that moves from a physical idea of sight to an institutional one, takes it up to question it, you know, what is an institution, what are its discourses, i.e. artists like Michael Asher, Daniel mm-hmm. Buren. Sarah feels that they're too dependent, that the deconstructive posture makes them too dependent on the institution so that they do not develop a sufficiently autonomous language of their own. The autonomous artwork? Well, he would say only semi-autonomous, I think, because, again, Sarah's one of the authors of the very notion of site specificity. The difference is, you know, how far do you want to go with site? Mm-hmm. And he wants to insist that one must stay with, uh, or he wants to insist, in, stay with a physical understanding of sight and a phenomenological understanding of the viewer. That's where he locates his art. I question him on both terms because I'm as you know influenced by the artists who develop his idea of sight, mm-hmm. and indeed by artists, not to mention theorists, who think very differently about what the subject of art, what the viewer of art is. And that's in a way where we have our fiercest disagreements. And I think that might interest readers the most. I mean, that's where not only personal but generational differences come into play. Right. Well, you definitely push back in the interview a little bit. I get I get. there's a little bit of disagreement, which is good yeah. um, and definitely makes for interesting reading. So I want to talk about one specific piece because, you know, I have to say within the bigger body of work of Sarah, I can never figure out how it fits in. And that's Television Delivers People. Because, you know, it seems like an outlier, in my opinion. I think it's an incredibly important work, particularly someone like me in media. It's like, and as a writer and all this thing, I think it's really an important piece that's, right. that's become more important as the years go by. How does that fit into his bigger body of work? Did you have a lot of conversations about that piece? Well, not a lot. Uh, we've talked about it elsewhere. We wanted to keep the, the focus of the book on sculpture. Mm-hmm. And when I do bring it up, when we do talk directly about politics and art, he says, in effect, that he wants to to keep our focus on on sculpture, but you know, for me too, it's a very important piece because it does open out into a critique of media that he might otherwise find suspect. On the other hand, it does that work does go to his criticism of the image of the media. That's a, a through line of his work. He's very skeptical of art that stays within the picture. I mean, quite literally, he says he gave up painting when he visited Madrid and saw Las Meninas, the great Velasquez painting, and saw how complex it was in its framing of the viewer. And he thought, well, that's it. Like, literally it. That's the limitation of the image, too. He wanted to engage the body. He wanted to gaze structure. He wanted to engage space and sight. So there's a, a philosophical animus against the image that's that's hooks up with a political suspicion of media. And television delivers people is a key expression of that 
general political distrust of the media. He's made other political works too, but he would insist, I think, that the politics is in his art, is in the form of his art. So let's talk about that part. Right. Because I don't think it's immediately apparent to most people, probably, what the politics is of Richard Serra, particularly in, in his sculpture. Right. Well, there's certainly the politics of the controversies of the work mm-hmm. and how they played into the culture wars. But this is how I would frame it. And I, I think this is how we came to understand each other and maybe draw each other into an agreement that we did not have before. Sarah insists on the abstraction of his work. It's very important that it's not an abstraction from the world, but that his work is intrinsically abstract, that it has nothing to do in terms of content. Representation and right, that. Right. With the world. I mean, again, this is the animus against the image. Mm-hmm. That's qualified when we talk about symbolic forms in his recent work. But that's his insistence, and that's his, his commitment aesthetically, too. He loves abstraction. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, his work is involved quite literally in the world. I mean, the key moments is when he breaks out into space, first into the gallery, but then into the city, into the landscape, and embeds his work. So it's abstract in its language, but embedded in the world. And that's where I think he comes to square the circle of the old opposition of autonomy versus engagement, autonomy versus commitment. I think, in a way, he plunges abstraction back into the world and thereby complicates it as it engages architecture, as it engages urbanism, as it engages even the, the experience of a landscape um, of property. Right. Uh, you know, that might still seem abstract. It's not directly political, but that old, you know, Sartre versus Adorno or the Mexican muralist versus Mondrian. I mean, Sarah's interested in both those, those right. positions. And there is a way in which I think one could argue that his practice brings them together. I didn't think he knew as much before we really bore down on the topic. And I know that I didn't. But we come not exactly to a reconciliation, because my favorite moments are when we fail to resolve our differences. But we come to an understanding there that those are positions that we might have to move beyond, that it's either autonomous versus committed. Thank you, Hal, for joining us. Thanks and, for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, likewise. And get the book, Richard Sarah. We'll put the details in the link to the podcast. And thanks again. The music for this episode is the Muzak from Sarah's influential 1973 video, Television Delivers People, a work I think about all the time considering I'm in the world of media. Who's the product, right? I'm Hrag Vartanian the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.